Jim Crenn, no restrictions with Tracy Jane. And on this episode, I'm really excited. Uh, this is one of, uh, of the over 250 episodes. This is going to be, this is my Hall of Fame episode, I think. Not that I have a Hall of Fame or worthy of Hall of Fame. It's but this one. could be, if there's a no restrictions Hall of Fame episodes, this could be. This is I, a very I'm feeling exciting it. Because my friend here, uh, Journey Gunderson, am I saying the right, last name right? That's right. Journey Gunderson uh, uh, from the, the comedy, uh, the National Comedy Center, which is the the real like Hall of Fame for comedy. It's a, it's a $50 million structure, and I am honored to be, uh, well, I, I got honored to be Pittsburgh's ambassador in 2012, so I am sort of, Journey's kind of made, I'm kind of the ambassador <laughs> to the National Comedy Center from Pittsburgh, because it said it's the greatest day trip you can make. If you want to do a day trip, I can't, if you're into comedy, you will not believe it. I can't even describe it. We're going to try to describe it. Uh, but Journey, thank you for joining the show. And it is the, the it is kind of amazing that that Comedy Center, isn't it? Well, thank you for saying so. And I'm glad you think so as someone of the comedy community. Mm -hmm. Because we were very uh, intentional about that. In 10 years of raising money and building and designing, you would not be surprised how many ideas ended up on the cutting room floor because they were hokey or cheesy or not authentic to actually sure. telling the story of comedy and yeah. you know comedians are a savvy <laughs> cynical bunch as you know who enjoys making fun of things so for 10 years i was stressed out like if we do this badly right. it becomes the biggest butt of a joke there could be ever you know right? and and comedy is such an anti-establishment irreverent anti-institutional place that it was kind of scary to be building an institution for it it, it you know you're right comedians this is long overdue. All comedians, or most of us, I'm included, very dysfunctional. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> don't like to look at ourselves at all. Right. And thinking of honoring yourself, that's a weird thing. So thank God they have a place for comedians. Not only like the greats, the legendaries, you know, George Carlin, Robin Williams, and you know, we'll talk about Joan Rivers in a minute. But, uh, you know, the comedians like the Mitch Hedbergs of the world, or... You know, even the Gilbert Godfrey's, I don't very know, but still, you know, some of the comedians that maybe aren't really complete household names, but they're just genius, you know? So it's kind of cool that it's immersed with all these qualities, your number one thing, mm -hmm. I think, about that place. Yeah, because every quality there. And I think that's what you see when you chose the comedians, I would think. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the early dominoes was the donation of George Carlin's archive which is this incredible thing of tens of thousands of scraps of paper and bar napkins and hotel oh. stationery organized in Ziploc baggies by topic in his hand, in his written hand. Oh my gosh. And so you could see his process with these joke files. So Kelly Carlin, his daughter, uh, donated the joke files to us in 2016. And she had said a lot of places, a lot of institutions, a lot of people had approached her over the years intending to build something like this, but they were always kind of fly by night or came and went or or didn't really have uh, the right story of the craft in mind, and that's what appealed to her. That this museum and the storytelling and the experience there is more about the process and the craft of comedy so that we can engender in the visitors an appreciation for how hard it is. Right. And I think the reason, someone asked me recently, like, why didn't comedians and why hasn't comedy uh, gotten the same level of respect as other art forms? And I, my theory is that good comedy looks easy. 
if you're doing it well, that's it looks point. easy. That's, that's a great Whether point. it's a film scene you're that's right. funny or whatever. So I think people think comedians, and you know, you're a stand-up, you know. Uh, it's just up there talking. It looks like you're winging it yeah. when you're when really no one has idea of the level of precision and honing and timing and all of the things that go work, into it. And yeah. all the work. That's a great point. And that's a great. And if, you were, if you're wondering, you know, in Pittsburgh where where this is in Jamestown, it's only a two and a half hour drive. Um, it's about twenty minutes from Lake Chautauqua. Some people may go to like about that, right, Jeremy? Yeah. It's about twenty. Oh, years. it's beautiful. And, and, but it's, that's that's the point. There's a lot of things to do around it. So if you want to stay, and make a weekend of it. It's kind of a nice little getaway, but it's also a great day trip. You know, like I said, just go up, take the family. It's the cool thing about it is it's you could it's kind of interactive in a way. May I ask you, Journey? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people out there haven't heard about this museum. Mm-hmm. This, you know, <laughs> homage to to this comedy world. Um, and when I first heard about it, I lived in New York for 16 years, mm. and I had a boss that had gone up to Jamestown for the weekend, and she came back raving and telling me, oh my gosh, you're in comedy. Have you been to this? Have you seen this museum? And, and could you please describe to people how it is interactive? Because a lot of people haven't heard about this. So, okay, they're saying if somebody has, wants to go visit and they're hearing, oh, it's a comedy museum, tell them how it's different. Okay, so you'll notice we didn't call it the National Comedy Museum for the very reason I think you're alluding to, that Mm -hmm. depending on who you use that word with, Mm -hmm. people sometimes have a negative association with the word museum because it sounds stuffy and static and boring. Right. Right. And now if you've been to some of the the few sort of really interactive museums in the world, maybe you have a positive connotation with that word, but we were really conscious of saying to ourselves, well, let's call it something more vibrant because it is. So it's the National Comedy Center, and but it is the nation's, as designated by the United States Congress, official museum and archive of comedy. Um, but rather than it just being artifacts in glass cases, we personalized it. Uh, so when a visitor comes through the door, the first thing they do is a sense of humor profile exercise, where you're just tapping things on a kiosk that you find funny. That data is loaded onto an RFID chip that you wear around your wrist, a little bracelet called a laugh band. And that allows you to tap into exhibits throughout your stay. And the exhibits read the room, just like any good comedian needs to, and take into account the sense of humor of the people in the space. Uh, And we, that notion came from producing more than 30 years of comedy festivals in Jamestown, the Lucille Comedy Festival. So we had seen firsthand two people walk out of the same comedy show and have completely different opinions. Uh, You know, whether that was the funniest thing they'd ever seen or not funny at all. And you see that all the time. And people Mm -hmm. assert it like it's fact. So we knew it was personal and somewhat subjective and that became the compass for the personalization. Uh, And then we decided also at a certain point that even though it was really interactive and immersive and you're enjoying the clips and you're enjoying the work and actually laughing, there was a designer in the room I remember saying, People still want to see the stuff. So we said, okay, what are we going to do? So we annotate this really interactive tech-savvy experience with things in glass cases like Charlie Chaplin's cane or Rodney Dangerfield's uh, suit and red tie that he wore all the time and his handwritten joke notes, pages of them, spilling out of his leather monogram duffel bag that he took on the road with him. So it's, it's always about process, too, where you're going, oh, wow, behind the scenes, Rodney Dangerfield had written in this in every centimeter of this paper upper left hand corner 
uh, what a crowd, parenthesis 2X. Like, he had written down that he's going to go to the stage and say, what a crowd, what a crowd. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, you just don't expect that that's going on behind the scenes or Joan Rivers' professional papers. And, and it's cool because, like, you get, like, a little respect. Now, I've been there, like, four times, three, four times. Now, they have my history now, so they'll kind of build oh, off wow. that history. Yeah. yeah. They'll kind of know Jim Crenn. Let's type in my name again. So it's kind of cool. And speaking of Joan Rivers, you just got a Joan Rivers exhibit that's kind of like the Carlin thing. Now, the Carlin thing was the thing that blew me away. Because we talked about a minute ago, but it was like going into his room or something like that, or his living room, or and you're like looking around. I was a little nervous. So if you're a Carlin fan, it's worth a trip alone for the Carlin thing. Is it? It was fascinating. It's so deep as far as like seven notes and things and personal. You really get a feel for the guy from just exploring that room. So the same thing is going on with Joan, right? With yes. Yeah. Among the crown jewels of comedy yeah. that exist on planet earth in terms of archives <laughs> yeah. Joan Rivers legendary joke file oh, uh, contains <laughs> 65,000 jokes typewritten from a typewriter on wow. on cards uh, wow. organized categorized cross-referenced I mean this was like a professional working file cabinet built into her wall that oh. she had her joke file and it's her jokes spanning 1950s through 2014 so you can also see like how her perspective evolves on different things as a woman. You know, early on, I think there were like 725 jokes on the topic of uh, unmarried and in my 20s. You know, and nowadays that wouldn't be as much of a topic for right. a comedian, right? But right. when she was coming up, the fact that she was in her mid-20s and unmarried was huge fodder for material on Ed Sullivan in 1967. So I love that it's a time capsule of our culture. You can like learn our history and what was going on in our culture that was controversial at any given time because it's Joan Rivers and she doesn't shy away from what's controversial. Uh, and now we're building this interactive exploration where you can come to the Comedy Center and, and search through the files. Well, Lucille Ball was like the great actress and comedian in that sense. But there's a queen of stand-up. She'd be in the running for mm -hmm. that. Like if Carlin or... You know, Robin or whoever's the king or Seinfeld, whoever, like you said, it's very subjective, whatever you like. But I would say she'd have to be queen. It's amazing how she transcended in, 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 a, in a tough business. And you know, Tracy, tell, it's it's tough for a woman. It's not. Yeah, it, it is, is tougher. I'm sorry, it is it's tougher. The way it is. Really? It's not I easier. heard that. I heard that. Care of that it's stuff. tough for an overweight guy with a low IQ too, but still, <laughs> it's really tougher for women. <laughs> yeah, well, it is tough for everyone, and uh, yes, you is. know, I was just talking to somebody about this issue on a podcast recently about like whether it's still harder for women in comedy. And when I think about Joan Rivers in the mm -hmm. 1950s, like, is there anything harder than that? I don't think so. Um, but it probably my theory, uh, many people's theory on that is that it's a powerful thing to do, and so there's some people who just are averse to a woman being. The mo if you're the funniest person in the room and if you're on stage and you're making everyone in the room laugh, right. there's nothing more powerful than that. And yeah, so there's her. an aversion some people have to just witnessing that power coming from a woman's voice. And so I just think it's Good not point. that they're not going to come along with you and figure out that you're funny, but I think female comedians have to overcome that hurdle first yeah. and be extra funny just to break through. And so Joan Rivers did it. The thing that's amazing about her career, who else stayed relevant and and in the zeitgeist and in the news Man and everywhere woman. every year every decade for that long and you don't do that if you're not resilient 
if you're not hardworking, if you don't have the work ethic, and if you're not really, really funny. Kind of genius. Yeah. Well, her material also, it, it skirted the edge just right. I mean, that's the hardest thing to do. That's where you want to be. You just skirt the edge, you know. She's never uh, over the edge. Well, I'm sure she went over at times, and that's why you have to give her a break on that because she's she's walking on a little tightrope. Uh, and that's what I thought was cool about it. Just right to the edge. She's you know not not yeah. dirty, but just right to that edge. So she could put on TV most of her stuff anyway. Well, and also, I never saw her live in concert. I'd have been cool, but you know, be, because uh, you know it was. I hate to say male dominated because at mm-hmm. that time there just weren't any right. Right. females. Yeah. Um, but but what a different perspective she had, mm-hmm. which you know made her different and and original as well. I mean, because a lot of a lot of what makes you stand up as a comedian is um, is is your different point of view. Right. So she was so different for that time as well. I mean, it just I, I can't wait to see it. But yeah, I have to nerd out for just a moment. So in college, so I'm a comedian, but in college, I was actually art history minor, and I was into museum studies. Oh. So I have to nerd out about the museum questions for just a second. <laughs> Yay, good. I mean, so much of this is paper, and the conservation of paper and artifacts, I mean, it, it must be... A, a bit of a nightmare to try to figure out how you're going to keep all of this intact and save it. You That's know, for right. The future. Yeah, we are a nonprofit, so no one's making money on this, and we have stepped up to be the institution that didn't exist for comedy until now. No one was preserving comedy's material history. You know, the Smithsonian may have room for one item in the topic of comedy here and there, or uh, per decade, or something like that, but. Carlin's joke notes were sitting in Kelly Carlin's garage. Hmm. Carl Reiner, you know, our archivists uh, worked with his family to pull the archives from his home that had been there for 60 years. And who knows otherwise what would have happened. Right. You know, oftentimes things have just been auctioned off and then it becomes disparate and you lose track of it. So, and there's so much to be learned from it. Um, But yeah, our archives team is top notch and we just recently got a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, so we're making the case that this is important, oh, just like the preservation fantastic. of all kinds of other archives. Uh, yeah, we're, Lewis Black calls us the Library of Congress of Comedy, uh, and so whether you, the analogy is we're what Cooperstown is to baseball, right, right. or the Rock Hall in Cleveland, uh, we're also the Smithsonian of Comedy, because no one was really preserving this stuff and preserving the stories of the heritage until now. That's a good point, because you know, we forget social media didn't exist back in the fifties and sixties. So it was all like Carlin's notes or whatever, and like they're in the garage. They could easily have been destroyed, and they're, they're like great finds, and now honored, like Joan Rivers is going to have. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I started doing stand up in two thousand in Houston, wow. and just how big the comedy world has grown since then. Um, I feel like it's, it's sort of grown as an art form since then because when I started there was a very small talent pool in Houston and we had three or four comedy clubs in that one city and there weren't that many comics but then last comic standing came out Comedy Central was getting bigger and that sort of grew this art form you know where before it was sort of this weird little niche kind of mm-hmm. art form and everything and now you know there's so many people think oh sure I could I'm a comedian I could do comedy and so it's good that it's getting this respect 
to show that no, it's a, it's it's a bigger deal than you think. And here's this museum that will teach you just how hard it is. A, yeah, in, how much work in, it is. Yeah, I'm I'm 90 years old, so but in, <laughs> in 1982 or three, there's a Pittsburgh comic club, comic club boom just started. Cable TV kind of just started too, in a way. Uh, HBO had like maybe Robin Williams on. That was it as far as. You know, the comedians, and I remember at the Pittsburgh Comedy Club as an MC. I get to work with all these people, but I remember Richard Belzer hmm. uh, saying to me, he says, yeah, man, you're in, the, you're in the middle, you're beginning of the rock and roll comedy. Like, all these hmm. comedy clubs, three, four clubs in New York City, it's the birth of comedy. So we have, a, it, comedy's been around forever, but there's like, it, this this style of comedy, so this is gonna this is gonna be big. And it was, obviously, there's three or four clubs and it enabled a guy like me, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, it's not the entertainment capital for me it is but uh, you know my mom and dad uh, you know I, I love and adore and I, you know, we're blue collar and that's the way it is so the comedian was like a, a way 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 far up tree. we didn't even know how it could be but all of a sudden these comedy clubs you have a way to make a living yeah. that's how I did it I was able to after college uh, after my nine years of college I <laughs> barely graduated from my UP and then I got in a car and went on the road So, but I was able to make a living at it and that, that, it, be, it was the birth for comedy in a way. So you're right. Yeah, and it's had these booms and then slowdowns in yep. terms of the club scene. Yeah. And that's why I think what we did recently was an important thing uh, in storytelling to open the Caroline's Comedy Club exhibit yeah. from Caroline's on Broadway because if the gym goes away, right. comedy suffers. Yeah. All the specials that people are watching on Netflix or on whatever content platform they are not going to be as good if the club scene dies right. because that is the gym as you both know i'm not telling you anything you don't know yeah uh for comedy and so it's important that we celebrate the clubs that we preserve them that we support them by going out to see live comedy right um and it's also where experimentation happens and where the best material comes from you can't go from a thought in your head to laying it down <laughs> in a special without 100 hours on stage tweaking it and honing it and People don't know that, and you know, COVID didn't help. Um, no, it did not. So we that just was, cut the ribbon horrible. with Caroline Hirsch uh, a week ago at the Comedy Center on the Caroline's on Broadway exhibit. We preserved the iconic stage backdrop, that Harlequin pattern. Everyone oh, knows it the instant right, they see it. Right. And this was a 40-year staple of the New York comedy scene. And she would do brilliant things like book the comics that were going to be on the late shows to come to the club, so that when they were on the late shows, they'd mention the club when she was really early starting out. Um, but some of the best comedy in our comedy consciousness that we know from finished, polished albums started in that room and on that stage. And without it, uh, again, comedy suffers. So we have to support the clubs and celebrate them as part of the story. That's pretty cool. It really is to showcase the clubs. You see, know, we'll see more, I'm sure, as the years go on. I could have swore I heard this. Correct me if I'm wrong. You have like a, some sort of a section just... Um, discussing and celebrating the Catskills and the, the like the Borscht Belt is it that true? Yeah we do sort of the history of all comedy so going back to like the ancient Greeks and Shakespeare through the internet and animation today and so you can't address the story of comedy without the Catskills and the Borscht Belt um, and there are these one of the cool things about the museum and one of the things that for example Amy Poehler said after visiting I, and she joined our advisory board. And when we had an onboarding sort of meeting later to bring her up to speed and get her involved uh, as a board member, I said, why did you say yes to joining? And she said, it's the mix of old and new and how you're making connections between the past and the present. And so it was just funny. Uh, 
Saul and I were talking earlier today even about Frank Oz coming to the museum. So he's a guy who wrote or directed uh, What About Bob and all these great films. But he also uh, was everything from Yoda to Fozzie Bear to Miss Piggy. So one of these great, amazing people in comedy. And he said the waka 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 of Fozzie Bear. He said he just came up with because he was trying to embody and exude sort of the energy of these Borscht Belt cat skills comedians who always had these little sound, you know, catchphrases sure. and things that they would annotate their, their routines with. And I thought, wow, that's just a funny comedy history story of cat skills and Borscht Belts meets right. the Muppets meets film. And so the Comedy Center Museum is now the nexus for all of this. Well, we, we'll get back to the uh, time that's wonderful museum, uh, but Journey happens to be in town uh, for the convention, not for, but it happens to be going on. The, con- the furry convention happens to be going on. Yeah. Uh, Did you love- say that's why I'm in town? Let's go with that. Yeah, let's go We love the furries. Uh, but we were talking about it, and it's interesting. Hey, you want to dress up in a costume? It's yeah. cool with me. It's fine with us. Uh, but we were wondering, like, what animal... If I were a furry, what animal would would we be? Like it's your, you know, it's you. It's your spirit animal, I guess. Uh, your alter ego animal, or whatever. I chose koala bear. Oh, koala bear. Who wouldn't want to drink with a koala bear? They have like they love have, koala. Everyone they loves have, a koala bear. They have chlamydia. Yeah, You've never a, heard of that? Yeah, whatever. Penicillin. The koalas at the convention? I didn't know that. No, koala bears for oh, in real. real life. They have real antibiotics life. for it. Probably the ones bears. at the convention, too. That's not a koala. stigma of the koala bear community, koala by the way. Have <laughs> I take it back. That is maybe, not a stigma not of a my furry. koala bear community. <laughs> this is you don't like them. I'm telling you, we don't talk about that in my koala bear group. What happened to the bear cat? <laughs> I do like, that's true. I do like the bear cat, too. I do like the bear cat, because I... Uh, Journey was in for uh, our, 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 the great, the, the greatest show, right? Pittsburgh today. We're like Pittsburgh today live. I love them. Uh, love being on the show. Journey was there promoting, uh, and I've been honored. They've been, you know, helped me so much in my career through my career. Pittsburgh today, and KDK uh, had me on the show. And one time I was on the show, they did the green room thing, and this one, the nice woman from the zoo brought this animal and it was a bear cat I didn't know what it was it looked fun oh. and furry and it was in a cage and it was goofing around I'm sitting there and she leaves and, and he looks so friendly I open up the thing and he's sitting on my lap and I'm petting him and she comes back in and she goes sir don't move I'm like holding the bear cat like, what's you know I want to or what I didn't know what it was I'm like looking oh, around like what is something around here what you know and, 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 and she goes back in the cage real slow she goes, he could have ripped your throat out. I go, yeah. what? He's a bear cat. He could rip your throat out in a second. The, the green room of he morning like, television here is kind of insane. I have to put down my pretty, lint roller to tell what happened next. But it's true. I've been operating a lint roller ever since this morning because I walked into that same green room surrounded by furries. It, there's furries surrounded everywhere. By furries. But you it. sound like you had a Johnny Carson, Joan Embry experience. I because did. Uh, Joan Embry, <laughs> the woman everyone remembers from Carson, yes. the animal woman who'd come Loved out with the animals, yeah. she came to Jamestown last August really? to help us cut the ribbon on the Johnny Carson exhibit. And I think she was among the people I've been most excited to meet in my life. It was just this legendary moment. And so we did a stage show in Jamestown with all of these uh, acts and performers whose lives were changed by going on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Oh. Which is so central to his story of comedy because that doesn't exist today in the same way. Where if you went on Carson, 
your life was never the same after that moment because he was the king of late night. Everyone was watching. It wasn't as fractured as it is today. Uh, and he really set the template for late night. So whether it's The Passing Zone, a comedy juggling duo, or Lance Burton, the magician, uh, or Joan Embry, uh, all of these people gathered in Jamestown with Jeff Sotsing, uh, Carson's nephew, and we cut the ribbon on the exhibit. And what's cool is that, so we are this nonprofit museum, right? So we're asking mm -hmm. people to participate and help tell these stories. For the Johnny Carson exhibit, Jimmy Fallon said yes to being the hologram host. Okay. So we went to 30 Rock and shot this with Jimmy right after he finished taping The Tonight Show a year ago. Uh, he's the host of the exhibit. You're in an immersive theater where you're surrounded by the story. And the other people who agreed to do interviews just one year ago for this exhibit that we just opened were uh, Mel Brooks wow. in his home, Steve Martin, Jay Leno, Bette Midler, who was famously Johnny's last guest, right. and in that interview decided to donate the wardrobe she wore you know, the, on the final uh, show. Uh, let's see, we had Martin Short, uh, Byron Allen, who okay. was a stand-up on Carson when he was 17 years old. Oh, wow. And so the exhibit is magnificent, and then we approached NBC and found that they still had the iconic uh, Rainbow Curtain. So when you huh. go to Jamestown now, not only are you immersed in the story and you're seeing a hologram host and all this, you walk out and you're standing there and you're going, is this the real curtain? And it is. The rainbow iconic curtain is there, uh, wardrobe from the show. Uh, it's a really fantastic exhibit. You know, it's funny. You're talking about how, how big it was and how it changed people's lives. It was so great that you had that exhibit for people that are younger maybe that, that never knew this. There was only three channels on you know yeah. television. But uh, I was watching the documentaries recently. Uh, you know, the AFC Championship game, whatever, it's like 40 million people. Yeah, that every night was between 30 and 40 million viewers, they said. Th think about wow. that. It's an AFC Championship game every single night, the ratings. Right. So, yeah, that changed your life. So it's cool that you're honoring uh, that icon, this icon, and his iconic show. It's kind of be fun. See, I just want to see the curtain. <laughs> I know. Yeah, there are people who would travel because that's the curtain. feedback we've gotten. Like, yeah. I would drive. I'd drive to Jamestown just to stand and take a photo in front of the curtain. I wanted like, to come out. Of that or curtain. go in the theater and have this amazing exhibit. One of the cool things when you exit the immersive theater is all of the uh, Rolodex cards that the office kept. So throughout people's careers, so you're seeing Don Rickles' little file card from wow. the office of the Tonight Show. And with a typewriter, every date that he was on the show, and then oh hand gosh. scrawls about like how he did. But you're looking at Robin Williams' card, you're looking at Jerry Seinfeld's card, wow. you're looking at Bette Midler's card, George Carlin. So we have this entire hallway just of those cards, which mm. is so fun to look at. I have to um, make a little bit of a circle here to go back to, um, I think, my spirit animal. I was, I was going oh, yes. yeah, to get the I want to get to see what you guys are. Well, this, this, this I'll make a point in a second. Okay. But, uh, I think mine is Fozzie Bear. I have a Fozzie Bear Halloween costume. Well, it's a sexy Does Fozzie Fozzie. Bear So have do I. So, do you, you really? Do? The fact that so, we're on a podcast right now and two people who both have been Fozzie Bear for Halloween is yeah. a little uncanny. Does, does, that does, does, oh, yeah, does Fozzie I've Bear have Fozzie chlamydia? Bear. We should be friends. So, what? No, Fozzie Bear doesn't have chlamydia. I just didn't. I'm just chlamydia. asking a bear so, family. But, but so, I mean, Fozzie Bear, yes, definitely. I think that would be my. I don't know if the I think furries would accept that. Well, it's not that they would accept it as a fur. I but, but you know, I'm not that's okay. For the furries, if I have to may. be a weird splinter group of furries just because I'm Fozzie Bear, 
I'm okay with You're that. on the same wavelength as me. I, I want know, a costume you, do you. To, to drink with. You say, hey, I want to drink with that Fozzie Bear and that Koala Bear. Right. right. I want to so, have a beer with them. They're not, they're not going to beat me. They're not going to eat me or kill me. or So because of whatever. that, now I have to ask, is there something on the Muppets? Is there something on oh, Fozzie yes. Bear? Oh, yes. Uh, we have had, actually, oh, yeah. we, we had it on loan, so it's just gone back. <laughs> uh, we rotate the artifacts. So that's the other thing. If you've been before, it's different every time you go to the Comedy Center. Oh, um we actually had the actual Fozzie Bear. We got to drive up for that display, now. In a display case, you would have lost it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would have been amazing. in tears. Yeah. Too much on you. Yeah, and that's the coolest it's thing. That we would watch people walk by as families, and there were kids who were like seven years old losing it when they'd see Fozzie Bear. People our age losing it when they'd see Fozzie Bear. People my parents' age losing it when they see Fozzie Bear. And you don't, that's rare to have multi-generational reactions to something in comedy <laughs> like that. And all I can think with the spirit animal thing is like, is Miss Piggy furry enough that I could be her? Is that your spirit well, animal? Well, it would be, but I've been I mentally think it, I think, like pondering. I don't know if there's enough fur involved are, to be Miss Piggy. We are counting Muppets I have to find someone else. Sam Eagle? Feathers. Oh, We're counting Muppets God. in this thing. They're birds. They're birds that are furries. I think. Do you think there's not an Elmo down at the convention center? There's probably 10 right now. I don't know. Meeting. I don't lunch. know. Tickets are expensive. Right Dollars, they, they sell out. It's big. Uh, I may be, you may not know. I'm a secret furry. I am a quo, but I'm kidding. <laughs> well, the anonymity is very appealing. I will say that. Okay, so now I have an odd question about the museum. Now you have an odd question. Yeah, yeah. like that wasn't odd enough. Fur. Okay, now I'm going to get weird. Uh, <laughs> so, Fozzie. When I started comedy, I mean, as a kid, seriously, I loved Fozzie Bear. He was, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I loved Miss Piggy. I wanted to be Miss sure. Piggy, yes. but I wanted Such to be funny like, you know, Fozzie Bear. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was in the sixth grade, that's when Bill Cosby himself came mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. on HBO. And I remember with just my dad and I sitting in the den laughing. I mean, you know, here we are, decades apart. You know, it's my de- gen- yeah. generations. And both of us laughing just as hard. That was a big moment for me, and I think that was a big part of why I became a stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. How do you address controversial comics that you know started out these icons and you know their reputation? That's a great question. It is a great, great question, Trace. Like O.J. Simpson, not in Hall of Fame, or is I don't know, isn't up. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, huh? we what were we were right in the middle of very fast-paced production on the museum, right, okay. turning it from a construction site into a living, breathing institution when Cosby went on trial. So it was in the moment trying to figure out how to handle him and so many others. Uh, The good news for us was we never built the museum to be designed by glorification of the individual. If you go there, it's not like it's like, here's the Jerry Seinfeld exhibit, and here's the Robin Williams exhibit, and oh no, we have to cancel or or decide what to cancel. It's organized by genre of comedy, and from the beginning, in fact, we, you know, we talked about whether to call it a museum. The origin of the idea in Jamestown was to call it the Comedy Hall of Fame. And we, moved, we evolved past that because we knew from talking to comedians themselves, there's already a weird and awkward relationship between comedians and awards. You know, the Oscars traditionally snub comedies. Mm-hmm. Like you can write the best comedy film. It's unlikely to win the Oscars. So... There's already this aversion, as you mentioned, about looking at themselves right. and taking you know, honors and distinctions seriously. So <laughs> we took the approach of more of an art museum, where it's about the work and the work product. And let's talk about the results rather than the glorification of the person. You know, let's make it about the craft and the work that they produced. So 
for example, our, the onus on us is to the storytelling and the history and the heritage. So you can't tell the story of comedy on television without talking about the Cosby show. It was foundational. It's a right. huge part of comedy story, particularly on television. Um, but then there were other areas. So our, our compass became when it's necessary for storytelling and the authenticity to comedy's heritage, we err on the side of including, not excluding. Um, but there were places where, for example, we had been building an exhibit on using your face in comedy. It's facial recognition, and it's about making people laugh without saying a word. And if you study this, there are so many comedians who are really, really good with their faces. There were places like that where we could have picked any number of 100 comedians, where we thought, well, you know, we, let's make choices that are intentional there, where it isn't, like, necessary for the storytelling to have a Bill Cosby mimic his face on a huge screen, for example. Wow. You know, I mean, I'm sorry to say it if that disappoints anyone, but... These are really tough issues, um, but the good news is, you know, you're going to see it all at the Comedy Center. In fact, in the Blue Room, the basement of the museum, it's the uncensored experience in comedy. So we lean into the story of what has been most controversial in comedy's heritage and what jokes in comedy have been most boundary-pushing. So a good example is Louis C.K. is featured, uh, he has a great bit on 9-11, because we have an exhibit on the concept of too soon. When is it too soon to joke about a tragedy? So there's a whole exhibit on this topic. And because Louis has a very famous bit that many people regard as really funny about 9-11, to do that exhibit absent of that material wouldn't have been doing justice to the story of comedy. So, you know, we had to think really hard about it, but our onus is to the, the storytelling authenticity. That is fantastic. That's fantastic. Journey Gunderson, uh, thank you for being on our show. If you're listening at the end of the show, you're gonna have to wanna go to the Comedy Center, the National Comedy Center. It's in Jamestown, it's two and a half hours from Pittsburgh, easy drive, great places to stay for the weekend. You you can't get it all in one, you, you'd have to stay there, it would take you 10 tri trips or whatever to really, you know, you could get you could get lost in the George Carlin room alone, and the Joan Rivers room, so. Uh, so we learned uh, from uh, Fozzie Bear and uh, the two Fozzie Bears, Miss well, Miss Piggy, yeah, yeah. and Piggy. a uh, koala bear without chlamydia. We have our spirit <laughs> so animals says. out. <laughs> so, I so I say, my secret. Uh, so. Wait till the convention's over this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so <laughs> we'll much see. for joining us. This was <laughs> thanks, Dirty. This was amazing. I can't wait. Love to having see you. It. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Dirty.